Hello, and welcome to the MadeCast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Miles. I'm Chin. I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. This week, we listen in on Alex and Mark Delora, who has held leadership positions at Nintendo, THQ, Ubisoft, Google, and Sony. He tells us the story of his long relationship with games, the early days of VR, and his time working at the White House as Senior Advisor for Digital Media and Educational Games. But first, let's get on with some news. So, Alrighty. in some uh, classic gaming news... Scum VM, which is used for all sorts of adventure games uh, throughout history, has just turned 20 and gets a pretty decent update. Uh, Scum VM has basically gained support for a whole bunch of different kinds of adventure games in this update, including uh, Grim Fandango, uh, Plumbers Don't Wear Overalls. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, ScumVM has been, has been around for a really long time, and it has been used a lot for adventure games, for uh, point and clicks, and it's just it's it's good to see that it's still alive and kicking. It's very nice, and it's nice to see that they're like getting everything up and still maintaining it for other people to continue to use it. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested into ScumVM for more, feel free to check our previous plays on an episode oh, quite a while ago we have um, our guests talking about the scum VM so yeah it's very exciting I'm glad to see that they're still hanging on alrighty and then also in other news Fallout 3 finally removes games for Windows Live from its necessary installers so it's a much more accessible game now after 11 years, 13 years. So originally you would need to download games for Windows Live in order to play uh, Fallout, and it would any games that ran on it ended up causing a lot of issues and bugs where now it's going to be a lot smoother. Not You don't have to have all this essentially adware to play a nice game. Well, that wasn't even the biggest problem. It was that... Um... After Games for Windows Live, which was not a good service, um, collapsed and was discontinued, all the games that needed it uh, just wouldn't go. Like they just would not work. Yeah. And uh, it was patched out of a lot of things, a lot of games, but Fallout 3 never got rid of it. So post like 2011, 2012, somewhere in there, you just couldn't play Fallout 3. Um, I bought it on Steam at around 2012 because I wanted to go back and play it. And. It just became a dead game. Like you could not run it without some pretty thorough modding that I didn't know how to do yet. Um, <laughs> nowadays, yeah. though, it's a lot more accessible. You can actually play it and run it without having to change the functionality of the game. Uh, so it's now is the time to go back and play Fallout Three if you've been waiting on it. Yeah, it might be my time to get in on it. <laughs> And then there's this other news that we have about Pokemon Legends Arceus. Not going to be a Breath of the Wild Pokemon game style, but more like Monster Hunter. 
So, like, as far as I know, like, right, Miles is going to have like a hub. It's going to have like a hub city with wild areas to explore that you travel to from the yeah, hub city. city that we've seen in the trailers is going to be sort of a hub um, and it's going to serve much more like uh, the mainline Monster Hunter games where you go from the hub, uh, which is your base, to all these various regions out in the world, you know, do do adventures, do missions, and then come back to Jubilife. Uh, mm. It's interesting Jubilife. because we've recently been seeing a lot more sort of tie tying of gameplay styles between the two like i remember uh the monster hunter stories being advertised as a bit more like pokemon yeah it is mm -hmm. and so now we're seeing pokemon being a bit more like monster hunter which is it's funny so are we going to be seeing in a, a t-rated or an m-rated pokemon game with never <laughs> i don't really pokemon think torture? nintendo would like but it <laughs> No, no, I don't think that's like it's, you know, it, Pokemon, I guess, is just going to become Monster Hunter Light and where you just capture them with Pokeballs instead of <laughs> shackling them and <laughs> harvesting their parts for armor. <laughs> I would say they probably take a lesson from the Monster Hunter stories, too, because I, I really think that was a very successful way of reworking the monster Hunter ip and i really have some fun of it and i literally have to s stop myself from playing it so that i don't get my whole day into the game and there has mm -hmm. it has been a while since that game do that yeah i mean that's great to hear and hopefully pokemon legends rcs will also drag a lot of people in and not let them get, not let them leave i'm excited for it uh but i think that might be all the time we have for news at the moment. We're going to throw it over to Alex and Mark Delura. Uh, and this interview is, I, I thought it was really interesting and fantastic to hear. And interesting to hear, especially uh, what they're looking forward for in the future. Uh, Mark was looking forward to some special integrate. Uh, we have all these other things where we, we can make games with now, like Unity and Unreal. Uh, it'll be exciting to see the ease of access that we can have to make games in the future. So without further ado, here's Mark Delora and Alex. And we are here with Mark Delora. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Hey, my pleasure, Alex. How you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm ecstatic to have you here. I've always wanted to go through your history. Like, how did you get started? Your first job in the industry was at Nintendo, oh, right? Hope oh, we're off to an, uh, a good barking start here in the Casa Delora. Was that was that Peach or Bowser? That I think it was Bowser. I, you know, <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> a lot of barking. That's all you know. Usually, uh, well, yeah. Thanks for having me on here, Alex. I've been listening to your guys' podcast for a while, so it's a pleasure for me to come on and and be able to chat with you. And of course, we've known each other for an age now, so uh, also it's just nice to catch up. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I I ended up I wound up you know my first real like games job was working for. Uh, Department of Defense related company. And they were trying to make an arcade game out of their simulation technology they developed. This was a company that was called Loral Aerospace at the time. And um, I wound up there after doing uh, virtual reality research in college and in grad school. So I, I had um, 
just kind of run into the right people and been in the right place and met these folks who ran a VR lab at University of Washington and wound up getting involved with that for three years there. And then went to UNC Chapel Hill and spent a year there doing VR stuff before I left because I just like building things. And mm. uh, <laughs> when I left school, I was like, dang, what can I do with the, you know, all this skill? I really wanted to build 3D worlds that could people could, you know, they could learn from or get inspired by or experience things in a different way. And um, this company was like, well, we're taking this technology that you know pretty well already, like like this 3D world building stuff um, from VR, and we want to make an arcade game out of it. Why don't you come help us? So that's kind of how I got involved. And of course, you know, it's game industry, and we never shipped that thing. <laughs> well, here, that, that begs a question. Uh, we've never gotten a chance to delve into the early VR equipment. Give me, what does the desktop setup for developing VR in 1992 look like? Oh, I, I, I loved that stuff. Um, and it was very, there's a lot of super high-end, really, really expensive silicon graphics equipment, like the size of refrigerators, like the old Onyx machines and things like that. Um, that's what that's what I think most people use was that kind of stuff. Um, at UNC, they had a piece of dedicated hardware called Pixel Planes that they built because UNC was a they they're really well known for designing their own hardware. They've got some professors there who came from like original you know computer hardware design. Um, but then uh, there was a big garage VR movement kind of around that time as well, and. Jesse Shell, I don't know if you know Jesse yeah, Shell. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jesse was involved in that at that point in time, and um, there was there was a lot of uh, people hacking power gloves to work on their PC. You know, the the 3D hardware at the time was still pretty young, but people were trying to figure out how to utilize that to get worlds that looked better. But Dactyl Nightmare is a a game. It was a VR arcade game from that era, and it, you know, it was like 300 polygons a frame or something. <laughs> and and that the headsets had to be custom for every I mean you didn't go buy something off the shelf, right? There started to be a few commodity headsets. Most of them were kind of research class though. You know, mm. the early ones used um little mini CRTs, you know, so basically <laughs> <laughs> shooting uh cathode rays into your eyes, uh, which seems like a bad idea. Um yeah. Well, what what about the development environments? How did you write this stuff? Yeah, there was a company called VPL um, from back in that area, that's a Jaron Lanier's company. Jaron's still okay. kicking around, and yep. um, so a lot of people use their stuff. They had a really nice um, data flow programming environment, and kind of reminded me of like Unreal Blueprints kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and you know, it was it was not a it was not huge like VR was this last bump, you know, not like that. No. But it was the first time. It was really only for movies like Lawnmower Man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, look at a Lawnmower Man now. It's so much fun for me. <laughs> was that like an inspiration for you? Because you mentioned VR and learning. I mean, what do you think at the time watching that movie? Do you think this was possible? Yeah, at the time I was like, hey, we finally made it. VR is going to be huge. Everybody knows about us. We got like VR games in the arcade and the Lawnmower Man. And like, it's going to be a thing. And then, yeah, not so much. It crashed and burned. It, it's quite remarkable how much enthusiasm was able to be mustered for systems that really could only push a couple hundred poly polygons, right? Yeah, that was that was an interesting distinction between the VR experiences you have now and then, though. When when we first started to see this this current, or well, I almost want to say this last generation of VR now, this current generation of VR, um, you know, the worlds, they tended toward realism, but when you only have 300 or 1,000 polygons, or even a couple thousand polygons, 
And your ability to, to use texturing is also super constrained. You're probably not using texturing. It's probably all flat shaded or, you know, like grow shaded or um, the world's tended to be very you know, figurative or magical is, is really the, the term I want to use because because they weren't worlds like you would expect them to be. They, they were cartoony. They were different and unusual. And so being in those spaces and feeling like, you know, that sense of presence, like you get in a good virtual reality world. Um, but having it be a world unlike anything you've ever seen before, it, it was, I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> it was an interesting, I remember trying some of those arcade games. It was the one you would stand up with the yellow helmet on. What was that, like 94, 95? Um, but I do remember being underwhelmed with the responsiveness. The The graphics were definitely as, as good as they got anywhere, but the responsiveness was just, just jarring. Yeah, that was exactly, that was the biggest issue. I mean, the latency and, and how long it would take to generate a frame to display to your to both eyes is just, I mean, it, to get from sensing that you've rotated your head to generating the frames that are now supposed to be in front of your eyes, if you could get that under, you know, a couple hundred milliseconds, um, you were happy. And the fewer polygons you had, of course, the more likely you were going to be able to do that. But then your world is, you know, super, super primitive. So it was a hard, it was hard. I mean, the, the resolution was the other thing that people complained about a lot. You know, you would, you, the displays were just not where they are now. And so you, you could see the pixels or you either have a really blurry display or you could, you could see the individual pixels kind of like a screen door effect. You could see the, you know, grid around them. So you had to suspend disbelief, but still those worlds, I mean, as primitive as some of that tech was, the worlds were just, they were so compelling. And you know, just like they are now. Well, you mentioned it being unlike anything you've ever, I mean, complete and utter novelty. You know, now VR is sort of this thing that kids could sort of get their brains around even before it existed, right? Like, but it was mind-blowing. It must have been mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, I, I totally fell in love with it. That's that's really kind of what got me going. You know, I was I was a computer graphics head. I really liked computer graphics. And then I ran into VR. I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I want to do this forever. Oh, wait, VR is going to go away and turn into this, like, <laughs> thing that's only used for location-based entertainment and maybe, like, at Ford and Boeing for the next 20 years. Was that was that a formative part of sort of your upbringing in the games industry to see that cycle? Yeah, well, yeah, I think for me, one of the interesting things, I mean, I, I really, I just fell in love with the idea of giving people experiences and worlds to understand. And that, of course, led straight into games. But it was also kind of an interesting experience of sort of going through that bump of like, oh, VR is a coming up and coming thing. Oh, hey, there's a whole bunch of people now in a forum on Usenet and I'm moderating and like, we're all talking about VR. VR is going to be huge and amazing. And then, oh, wait, VR is not going to be huge and amazing. Oops, VR is going away. Oh, if I say the word VR in a grant, I won't get any money. Oops. <laughs> you know? And then to go like, you know, my next real gig was to go to Nintendo. Um, where it's that you have these platform cycles of five or six or seven years. It was, it's kind of it's reminiscent, right? Like it was mm -hmm. at least something that was familiar to me in that way. Mm -hmm. And so you've been at Nintendo, you've been at Sony, but I wanted to ask, how'd you get to the White House? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was just, I mean, uh, that was just luck, I think. Um, and, and some good friends. It, it's been probably been 10 or, or 15 years now that I've, been saying to anybody who would listen to me like i love games how can we make games you know be more and do more and make them more accessible and give people different experiences that are fun but also inspires them to go out and exercise or meet new people or learn new things or whatever improve their their lives however it is that they want to improve their lives um, we need to do more with what it is that we're creating if, if we want that experience so how do we do that 
and you know i i'd sit around and drink with friends and complain and <laughs> and scheme and try to convince people to try things that were interesting and new and um some of my friends uh are really well connected <laughs> and we're like hey <laughs> so we know these people um you know actually the the office of science and technology policy at the white house during the obama administration you know, they had seen that there were some interesting things happening in this space. Um, so Fold It is an example of a game, a quote-unquote game, uh, that that it really it had an impact outside of being an interesting game. Fold It is a game about folding protein molecules, which probably doesn't sound super fun. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's a major scientific problem. There's also the uh, the SETI at-home-like program for folding protein molecules, right? Like totally. you donate yeah, CPU yeah, yeah. time. Same, same thing, basically. Yeah, the, but the idea of the of the uh, experience was to try to get people who weren't scientists to to enjoy uh, uh, folding protein molecules or finding how protein molecules fold, and then maybe training them up and how that happens, and then being able to give them problems of proteins that were so complicated we didn't really know how they folded. But maybe since you've learned the rule sets of how the simpler ones work, you'll have some good ideas about how the more complicated ones work. Um, and so that, that was the idea. And the more people that played the game, the more kind of shots on goal you'd get at like figuring this out. And it was, I want to say it was 20, 2011. I forget the year. Um, but like 10,000 players of Fold It uh, came together to work on uh, a molecule that was uh, an HIV related enzyme mm. that scientists had not been able to figure out the structure of. Usually they would use X ray crystallography, but the more complicated the molecule is, uh, harder it is to, to use that to have work um, mm -hmm. and this community of people in 10 days were able to figure out like this is what the molecule looks like and the scientists had worked on it for 10 years <laughs> so there's That's a research amazing. paper out there all about the results and and you know that that those learnings were used to create medicines so I, we were just like okay if games can do that like what the heck else can games do you know and there were a few other games like that that i think had really they were really impactful to people there who were watching the space. And they thought, mm. well, maybe we can get some people in here who can help us push this forward, you know, internally, talk to us about what games are and how we might use them internally. Um, and then externally go out there and talk to people who are experts in games and, and see if they will diversify what it is they're trying to create so we can do more of this kind of thing. Uh, so after having gone from VR and doing grants to, you know, do education stuff and then going into the industry and then going to the White House. What have you seen that maybe is, is a common thread or something that all of these different disciplines of politics and games and actually just regular software research, what can they all learn or share? Is there a commonality there? Yeah, the, I think the, the, the term I always go back to what I'm trying to describe to, for example, just describe to people who aren't game players, you know, what, what games are and why they're valuable and important. It, I always come back to engagement as being the like key central concept around all of it. Mm. And some games will be engaging for some people, but not engaging for other people. Some virtual worlds will be engaging to some people and not to other people. If you're trying to have an impact, if you're trying to make a game that has an impact on somebody, you want to make an experience that's going to be engaging to that kind of person, whoever that may be. And so you have to figure that out. And then you have to, being somebody who's worked in games, you know, you, you learn techniques for for engaging the player because you you don't want them to get bored. You don't want them to, you know, play the first level and then walk away because the second level's dull. 
you know, this, this things that you do make a world that's living and breathing, not completely static, show lots of new novel things they haven't seen before, all this kind of stuff. Like, okay, well, how do I, how do I take all those little things in my toolbox and figure out how to use that, you know, to teach you algebra, <laughs> you know, or, or to get you to go out and like walk around your neighborhood by like finding Pokemon or whatever, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of potential there. It's also something that's, it's not, there's, there's no easy solutions there's no easy answer to this thing is it's like as much art as it is science. Mm. So when you try to talk to people about like, Hey, we should make a game that does this. Um, you also have to say, well, nobody's ever done this before. We're not quite sure how to do this. We're going to have to go back and forth and, and figure it out between us. Uh, it, you mentioned the, the sort of nebulous niche of it, uh, of it all. You're absolutely right. Uh, the, you know, people in the art world often debate what is art and in the games world people debate what is fun. And like both of those are very difficult questions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think where I come down on them these days is like everything is art and everything is fun. It's just like, is it, <laughs> is it art to you? Is it fun to you? <laughs> I think it's all art, whatever. <laughs> very true. Is it fun to you? Because, you know, I mean, you look at some of the stuff in Europe, like the, the bus transportation simulators, or uh, you look at things like Factorio. I mean, this is fun to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, there's like the farming simulators and I keep meaning to just buy some of those and play them because I'm like, well, how is this fun? It must be fun. People seem to love it. Well, maybe it'd be fun to me. I should just try it. I mean, no matter what, there's progress. Any game that you're playing, you're going to make progress, right? In the real world, you might not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the real world, it's sometimes hard to identify what the metric is you're making progress along. (laughs) Exactly. So, okay, we got we got some time here. I wanted to see if you could promote some games that are changing the world or you hope will change the world or some things that maybe in the future. What, what, what's in your bag of uh, future-altering educational gaming paradigm-shifting tricks? <laughs> well, I always have, like, I have some go-tos that I always think about. When people ask me, like, what is a good kind of game for learning or a game for health or, or things like this, like, what are the things that I look at and... and um. Like the one that I always go to is this game called Dragon Box Algebra, mm. um, and I, I this is game now. It's it's been around for I don't know six probably six seven years in various forms. Um, but what's interesting about it is that so it's a it started out life as an iPad game if I remember correctly, um, and if you start it up and you go to play it, um, what you see is it doesn't look like algebra at all. It looks like little cards with little monsters or little things that look like black holes and you drag them around and um, you're like. Why is this algebra? Um, mm. But it's 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 it teaches you these little rules. Like if you if you take the monster with the crazy hair who's purple, and then you take the monster with the crazy hair who's kind of looks like the negative version of that, like a like a film negative. So he's like mm. gray, black, and white. And if I drag one on top of the other, they go away, and what shows up is a card with like a little swirly black hole on it. I'm like, I, I don't know what that means, but okay. So if I want to get rid of the monsters, I gotta I gotta match the pairs. All right. So like as the game progresses, you learn these weird rules and you don't quite maybe understand what they are, but but it's fun and the challenges are are pretty simple. Um and as things build, some of the stuff stuff starts going away. So the 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 monsters maybe in one particular round they'll be replaced by x and negative x, you know, or mm-hmm. the black hole will turn into a zero or whatever. And so you play this game 
which is fun and interesting. And slowly you realize, wait, I'm like solving algebraic equations for X, basically is what I'm doing. <laughs> That's perfect. There you go. The sneaky learning. It's totally sneaky learning. And it's it's really accessible. And I, I played it all the way through. Like the, it's, it's designed for like, there's two versions, one for five-year-olds, one for 12-year-olds. And I'm like, these are amazing. I, I just had so much fun playing them. So I always point to that. There was a research study done on it too that, that ran students through... Uh, a, a, an adaptive version of this game so if you did really well on the early ones it would run you basically run you through the skill tree more quickly or if you got stuck it would generate more problems so you could get, get you over the bump mm. and um they found 93 percent of the students who had played it um, after playing it for 90 minutes it didn't matter if they were kindergartners or 12th graders but you could give them three algebraic equations and they could solve it on paper it's <laughs> like that's Mind amazing. Blown. <laughs> it's such a contrast to. Uh, I remember doing stories about the serious games, the serious game summit, and you know, it, all that stuff was literal translation and simulation. Like Alcoa had a forklift driving simulation where somebody talks to you and tells you what to do, and like contrast that with like here's Magic the Gathering. Oh yeah. wait, no, it's it's math. You know. Yeah. Right. It's exactly. Such a better approach. I mean, I, I I think I come from it more from the perspective of making something that's super entertaining and engaging and then making it fun as opposed to taking like a task that you're forced to learn and trying to jam fun into it because jamming fun into something generally doesn't work that well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or at least thought to be. Well, I, I feel like a lot of that stuff was also sort of mitigating the risk of real world training, whereas, you know, algebra doesn't hurt anybody in the real world. So you can have a lot more fun with it. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what makes you happy or, or optimistic for the future here of educational games? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that probably from a high level perspective, one of the things that makes me happiest and optimistic for the future is that there's a massive number of people who are getting trained up in how to make games and like use the techniques and the, the tools that are out there. You know, I remember 20 years ago, I think I was at Sony and I was so excited. It was like, Digipen and Full Sail and Guildhall, I think, were like the first three schools that started mm -hmm. up. And I was like, oh, my God, there's schools. They're going to teach game development. Now there's like 450 or something in the U.S. that teach game development in some way, um, mm -hmm. which is so awesome. And the tools like Unity and Unreal, you can just download, you can learn, you can use. Um, and that's all amazing. And I think that like interactivity and, and engagement and fun and like all, all of these things are going to be so much more accessible to so many more people. So you're going to get a diversity of more and more interesting experiences. And you see that as you've seen the indie game community grow and prosper, like the, the kind of games you get are, they're not the games that you would get if you had to place a $70 million bet to build a AAA game that you wanted to make $200 million on, you probably wouldn't make this, you know, super risky, creative other thing. Uh, but, it, you know, if it's you and a friend and you're doing it at home and you don't have to make a ton of money, but, you you know, you want to be sustainable, um, you can take more risks. So I, I love that. Like from a, from a high level perspective, that that gets me super excited just seeing all these people. It does seem like it's easier than ever to make games. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing, uh, which I mean, contrast this with when you were coming up, right? Like you had to first make your tools and then you made your games, right? Like half the development process was just building what you were going to build to make the game. I'm going to make my tools and I'm going to love making my tools. <laughs> I'm going to spend all my time making my tools and I'm never going to make my game. That's generally what would happen. <laughs> but, right. but I did really enjoy it. Uh, I do. <laughs> One of the things I do wonder about and I do sort of cogitate on these days is you know, I feel like there's a disconnect or another another stage we have yet to evolve in, in the game industry. It was like, you know, there was 
when 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 renderware first came out ages ago and was a tool you could buy to build games inside of and they made like grand theft auto 3 and that and, and you know we had a big conversation around whether these tools were a good thing because all the games are going to look alike and da, 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 da. And now there, there have been three or four evolutions of those sets of tools and where we're at now, it's like mostly Unity and Unreal and like Godot is out there, which is super interesting and a, and a few other ones that are smaller. But like what we don't have is a tool on the web which makes games you publish on the web because we, we have like Google Docs. Like you can go and make a doc and you can send it to somebody and they can see it on the web and it's all on the web. I get my email on the web. I read everything on the web. I do everything on the web, but I can't make a game. In the browser, there's not great tools for that. So like, that's, that you know that's coming. Like, where's where this? We got, we got to build this thing. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of pieces for HTML5 development in the browser, but you're right. There's no like oblique games IDE or like a, a game maker for HTML5 or something. Yeah, and I, I bet there are some out there that I'm just not super aware of, or like somebody's porting Godot to JavaScript or using WebAssembly or whatever. You know that's out there somewhere. Somebody's got to be doing it. Um, but I'm I'm cheering them on because I think the, like, that's probably the next step. Both both Unity and Unreal will export to HTML5, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the, you know the tools are so strong that you can build inside of those platforms and push out to the web, and it's a, like that gets you so much. Um, but I still. I still want developers to not have to go over to that, you know, what that barrier. Like if I'm on a Chromebook, if I'm a fifth grader and I have a Chromebook for my school, why can't I go to a website and build something that's like more complicated than Scratch? Because I can do Scratch, but where's the next thing? Exactly. Where's that next step? I think we, you're absolutely right. Scratch has sort of nailed that web experience. But yeah, and it's so go good. Now? It's like Scratch is amazing. But when I get bored with Scratch, if I'm, you know, I'm that age, like what do I do? That's a good question. Hopefully one of our listeners can answer it for us. But yeah, thank you so much for being here, Mark. Yeah, of course, Alex. Yeah, it's so good talking to you, man. I, think, I feel like we could talk for like two hours, but everybody would be totally bored except for us. Oh, I know. I wish we could do hours and hours and hours, but nobody would listen to a seven-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, <Sorry>. true. <laughs> okay, thanks so much for being here. All right, thanks, man. So thank you, Mark and Alex. That was a lovely conversation. And it, it's so interesting to see like, the, the breadth of where he was able to work and everything that he was able to do. It was been very, it was very interesting and it's exciting to have someone who's so into games representing them and trying to make sure that they are represented properly out there. Mm-hmm. It, refreshing to not have some, someone who doesn't, who has never touched a video game in their life to tell us about what video games are and what they're doing. <laughs> But we want to thank you, and thank you again, Mark. Uh, so what has everybody been playing? I know, Miles, you played a little bit of Metroid Dread. What did you think so far? Well, it is definitely a continuation of the series. Uh, it seems like they're kind of discounting... Um, the the previous uh metroid game which was other m um mm. it doesn't seem to be as tied into the main story anymore uh the main story of course being metroid metroid true metroid 2 mm-hmm. um uh zero mission which is a retelling of metroid 1 mm-hmm. uh uh metroid fusion and then this mm-hmm. one metroid dread uh fusion came out i think like 
14, 15 years ago. Um, and I really loved it, but it was very linear compared to other Metroid games. And this one feels a bit more open. Um, okay. So they're going sort of back to the, the older style, uh, which I think is good. Um, it Metroid being sort of one of the, the founders of the genre, the Metroidvania. Oh, uh, that's where it comes from. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the very open world, finding keys, finding doors, doing things out of order. I was a little concerned coming into it because... Uh, I had just completed playing Hollow Knight, which I think is probably the best Metroidvania of recent years, uh, if not all time. Like, I I loved that game. And I was worried that Metroid would not be able to, you know, come back in and say, hey, I made this genre. This is how we do it. Um, mm-hmm. It's still a little early to say. I've only been, I've only gotten like an hour or so in, but it's shaping up to be a good, a very, a very good game. So, yeah, that'll be that'll that's gonna be. There's too many games out currently. I'm I've been bombarded with my with people telling me what games to get, and mm-hmm. it's hard to decide when there's so many. We're actually in a time where there's a lot of really fantastic games that are coming out and being playable right now there's a bit I, th- I felt like there was a bit of a drought in good games the past couple months um until recently but mm-hmm. it's exciting to see it's exciting to see new games with old faces with familiar faces but i do think that that might be all the time we have for today everybody so we want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the Maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services. And we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chin. I'm Red. I'm Miles. And I'm Anthony. Thanks. We'll see you next week.